0: If you'd like to follow along, I'll read Article 27 in the back of the hymnal. That can be found on page 82. 1 Peter 2, found on page 1888, if you're using the Pew Bible. Very familiar words by the Apostle Peter as he writes, to the believers in that part of the world. But by the Spirit, God gives them to us as our authoritative word as well. Let us give our attention then to God's holy word. First Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, reading through verse 12. But you are a chosen people to abstain from sinful desires, which, wage, which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Article 27 of the Belgic Confession on the Catholic Christian Church. these words. We believe and profess one Catholic or universal church, which is a holy congregation of true Christian believers, all expecting their salvation in Jesus Christ, being washed by his blood, sanctified and sealed by the Holy Spirit. This church has been from the beginning of the world and will be to the end thereof, which is evident from this that Christ is an eternal king, which without subjects he cannot be. And this holy church is preserved or supported by God against the rage of the whole world, though it sometimes for a while appears very small and in the eyes of men to be reduced to nothing, as during the perilous reign of Ahab the Lord reserved unto him 7,000 men who had not bowed their knees to Baal. Furthermore, This holy church is not confined, bound, or limited to a certain place or to certain persons, but is spread and dispersed over the whole world, and yet is joined and united with heart and will by the power of faith in one and the same Spirit. We'll be focusing on three words that occur there towards the beginning of this article. Washed, washed by his blood and sanctified and sealed. Washed, sanctified, and sealed. And that will become more apparent as we go on. Let us consider uh, these things together, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. You might say, in, in our day, in, in our world, and in our culture, the, the, the Western culture, that has quite a long history in relation to the Christian church, that uh, we live in uh, interesting times, perilous times. read this week that, it, that the church is not so much reaching the lost as it is losing the reached. Right? Each and every year you see more and more people who uh, leave the church. And uh, there has been, a. as studies have come out, there has been this movement from... Uh, mainline denominations towards more evangelical denominations and perhaps these uh, big megachurch kind of productions, but that uh, these megachurches are standing as more of a a stepping stone to get out of the church. There's a lot of people kind of on the carousel through and making their way out of the church, but it becomes a, a stepping stone and a middle way. The church is indispensable to the Christian life. The church is, it, it, we cannot overstate its importance to us. But you look throughout the history of the church, there are many things you have to account for and things you have to see where the church has gone up and down and shifted to the right or the left on many things. In ancient Rome, where being a Christian all of a sudden became a, a socially acceptable thing to do and then a socially advantageous thing to do, uh, the Christian church changed its place in the world. And because of that, many things happened as a result. Being a church became more about growing in numbers and power and prestige. It wasn't about the Great Commission. And What is the Great Commission? What is the, the mission of the church? Jesus says, go and make disciples. The church is to be about Making disciples, not growing in power or prestige, not to be impressive in the world or in the eyes of the world, but churches have been evaluated as to their success in regards to to worldly standards, and we 've seen that really uh, put on on uh, the, the throttle has gone to the floor on that in our age, the success of a church evaluated according to worldly standards, not in Depth of faith, not in, in a seriousness about our piety or our doctrine, not in seriousness about our worship and regulating it according to scripture, but rather uh, how many people come through the doors, how many people are impressed with what you do. These are oftentimes how a church is evaluated. The church, though, exists as a community formed in a manner above all earthly powers. This is, this is God's work, building the church. And the, those who preach and proclaim are merely stewards. Those who are given to shepherd the flock of God or to, to govern in the offices of the church, an elder or deacon, they are stewards. They are handed something that existed before them and that will exist after them. And uh, pastors, elders, and deacons are to take note of that and to never forget it. They're stewards. And it will outlive them. The church is above all earthly powers, as I mentioned. It is God's work. And it is three things, as we said in in the confession, washed by the blood of Christ, sanctified and sealed. So our three uh, ideas tonight, three main points is this. The church is displaced. It is a displaced community. Secondly, it is distinct. It is distinct. And then thirdly, it is dispersed yet not divided, dispersed, yet not divided. First, the church is displaced. It's a displaced institution, a displaced community. Uh, The church is a thing in this world. We should ask ourselves, as we think about what God is doing in and through the church, we should remind ourselves that there's a church rather than nothing. Whenever God decides to make something rather than nothing, it is for a reason, And so we we certainly, as we said, the church exists to make disciples. But we also see in this passage that the church exists as God's possession. It is for God. It is for his glory. It is so his purposes might be fulfilled. This was true of Israel in old times as well. Exodus chapter 19, after God brings them out of Egypt, he says in Exodus 19, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. right? And, and, and that God is saying that he's in control of all things. He could have done whatever he wanted, but what he wanted to do and what he did was to redeem this people for himself, this visible people, Israel, uh, for his treasured possession. So the church then exists under God and it exists for God. It exists as something apart from all other institutions, all other uh, groups of people in this world, all of their classifications. Well, first, the church is displaced. As I said, a displaced community. We, as the church, are displaced from our sovereignty. Right? Our sovereignty is taken away. As members of the church, we read in First Peter chapter two that we are a chosen people. That's a, a passive verb. Oftentimes in, in the Bible where you see a passive verb, it is a, a divine passive. In other words, God is the one who is actively doing that. So he is the one who has chosen us. The church exists because of God's sovereign will. The Greek word ecclesia to, uh, comes from ek, the, the pre- prefix ek, out of or from. And the verb kaleo, or the verb for calling the called-out ones. You are called out from the world into this community of God's work, this sphere of God's work. Thus, who we are as the church, as the people of God, who we are, uh, we are, are not this because of our own choice. You look at the world and the what you might call the exaltation, the, the, the glorification of choice. If there is one thing that is um, idolized in our world, it is the idea of choice or consent. Everything in your life has to be a product of your own choice, has to be a product of your own consent. We're seeing the many ways in which that worldview is, is falling apart, and you can't uphold any sort of conviction If that is what you stand on, just uh, individual autonomous choice. The church is founded upon the choice of God. It is a chosen people. It is a people for God's possession. Uh, All the earth is his, but he has chosen to make the the church especially his own. Chosen... A chosen people, this word for people is one that signifies uh, perhaps a nation, a a large group, a a large group of people. And this of course uh, connects us to the exodus that that God created a people when he brought them out of Egypt. But the, the prophets look forward and they see a second exodus. And uh, when we talk about the New Testament church, we are the product of that second exodus. Isaiah chapter 43 says this, the Lord says, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and ostriches, for I give the water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. God says that in future times he will bring people out once again and he will redeem them, but this time from their sin. This is God's choice. We're displaced from our own sovereignty. That is taken away from us, right? Who ultimately has sovereignty in our lives? Not ourselves, it is God. We, secondly, are displaced from our self-determination. We're displaced from our self-determination. We don't get to decide, ultimately, the path that we get to take for our lives. What is right and wrong. In a a therapeutic world, the world in which we live, where where everything uh, has to be fashioned according to someone's likes and dislikes, where uh, the the, the greatest pursuit in human life is self-fulfillment, self-actualization. In that kind of a world, authority disappears. There is no standard of authority, no point of reference for right and wrong. In the church, we're displaced from our self-determination. In 1 Peter chapter 2, what are we because of God's choice? We are to be a royal priesthood. This is a, a phrase that shows up in places other than 1 Peter chapter 2. It's a royal priesthood. It means a, a, a nation of priests or a, a priesthood of kings, depending on if you're reading the Hebrew or the Greek. But it's a nation of priests, a, a nation unified in, in what? What does a priest do? It's, a priest serves God. Uh, he ministers before God. He sacrifices for God. This is what the church is to be. Uh, Our vocation is serving the Lord. Our vocation, what what God has given to us in our lives, is to serve Him, to minister for Him. Not for ourselves. Not to live according to our own self-fulfillment, but to live under the authority of someone greater. Psalm 132. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. And let your saints shout for joy. Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. This is the spiritual worship that we are called to in Christ, to serve our God as a kingdom of priests. Hebrews 13. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. We are to please the Lord. We are to please him. We are to serve him. We are to live uh, according to what he has determined, not ultimately according to our own self-determination. It's a blessing, certainly in our world and, and in our age, that many of us get to choose Many of the things that we do, in terms of our vocation, what we will do, that is an immense blessing. But, and that's something that you go back a few centuries, people did not get to live that way, right? Your father was a farmer, you were a farmer. You didn't have those kinds of of freedoms. That's certainly a blessing. But the the blessing of that uh, has, we've started to see the ways in which that can become a very dangerous temptation as well. How far does that autonomy go? How far does that self determination go? Right now, what we're seeing is that human nature itself doesn't create any boundaries for people. Right, they can define what kind of human they are, or they can define whether or not they want to be a human being. As God's people, our self determination and our sovereignty is gone. We're we're displaced from that. God calls us out into the, out of the world into the church to serve Him. We're displaced from our selfishness and our living for ourselves, our solitary living. Why? In First Peter chapter 2, we're called a, a holy nation. We're reconstituted, set apart for God. To be holy is to be set apart. The church is, is different. It's different than the rest of the world. A nation has laws and governance, but it lives within the sphere of the freedom that the king gives to it. And this is Christian freedom. We're called into the church by the sovereign work of God and God circumscribes our lives with governance and with law and with commandments. But he allows us to live in the sphere of that in the freedom of serving him. We do so as a holy nation, as, as a people that are, are his, there's a social aspect to the church. We serve the Lord together. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. We have a fellowship together. We submit collectively to the authority that is bound up within the church. We see all of those things displaced from our sovereignty, our self-determination, our selfishness. And so from this, all of this we conclude that not only is God sovereign in the work of the church, but the church is the new Israel. Peter is using all of these terms borrowing them from uh, the Old Testament and showing that they are fulfilled in us as the New Testament church to show that we are a people displaced to serve God in holiness just as Israel was, right? Come out from them, be separate, go into the land of promise and serve me. The second exodus is our liberation from our bondage to sin, and that's only experienced in Jesus Christ. And so we read in article 27 that the church is a holy congregation of true Christian believers, all expecting their salvation in Jesus Christ, being washed by his blood. So that's the picture of redemption. And the church is comprised of those people who are saved in Christ and who are expecting their salvation in Christ. So the, uh, the article in the Confession It says what is true about the invisible church. But it's talking about the the visible church as well. And all throughout history, there is a a company, a congregation of God's people. And within that, there are believers and unbelievers. It's a a mixed company. And so we have to keep in mind this visible and invisible distinction. The whole of the church is called after the part, right? We, We assert what is true about those who are truly redeemed in Christ, we assert that about the whole church collectively. But we understand that it is a mixed bag, as it were. The whole is called after the part. There are unbelievers in their midst, in our midst. We assert and claim what is true of the essence of the church. as those who believe the gospel, uh, that God includes our children in the covenant promises that they might be raised in the faith as well. But we understand that there are those within the church uh, who may profess Christ, but who do not have uh, the substance of saving faith. So we need to keep that visible and invisible distinction in our minds. Also we see from 1 Peter chapter 2, the church inherits the promises that are made to Abraham. We have a connection to uh, the church throughout all the ages. That's why it says in Article 27, the church has been from the beginning of the world and will be to the end thereof. We're connected to these promises, but we also have uh, the fuller stage of the realization of these promises. And what we see as New Testament, New Covenant Christians is the realization of the Spirit's presence among us, that we are the temple of God. We have this fuller experience of the Spirit. Certainly the Holy Spirit was active in God's people in the old covenant as well, but Pentecost shows a fuller giving of the Spirit, a greater realization of these promises. But the church is displaced displaced from the world, taken out of our sovereignty, taken out of our self-determination and our selfishness to serve God in this sphere of his work, the church. Secondly, the church is distinct. The church is distinct. First, the church is distinct in its love. Augustine called the church the city of God. And he said that the city of God is, is oriented in this way that its ultimate love, its deepest and truest love, is for God and his glory. That is our ultimate love. We are distinct because we are the company of those on this earth whose ultimate love is for the one true God and to serve him, and we love his glory. This is why Augustine talked about rightly ordered loves. Are the loves in your life rightly ordered? It's okay to love the beauty of the earth and to see it in all of its majesty, and all of its splendor. It's okay to love from the depths of your heart the goodness of the family, and to understand God's grace poured out there. It's even okay to love the cubs, believe it or not. But the question is, are all of those loves rightly ordered? Do they fall... Underneath your love for God and His glory, right? Hopefully, Cubs is way down the list, right? It shouldn't be God then Cubs. You've got a problem then, right? That's my 20 year old self that probably would have said that. Are your loves rightly ordered? The city of God has that rightly ordered love, and that number one, our ultimate and deepest love is for God and His glory. Peter says in chapter 2 of his epistle, in verse 9, So that you are all these things, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, so that you might do what? You might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. This is a, a missional statement from Peter, a foundational missional statement about, the ch- about what the church is to do. And it's to do what? Ultimately to exist for God and for the glory of God. It's that rightly ordered love. The love of God is our deepest. We are to declare the the virtue, the praises, as it says in our translation. We are to declare the the praises. That word is the the excellence or the the praiseworthiness. You look at something and you say, that is worthy of adulation and praise and honor. We look at God and what he has done in saving his people and we say he is worthy of praise. But we exist as the church, this displaced people and this distinct people, so that we might declare the praises, the excellence of God who calls us out of darkness into his wonderful light. This can only happen as the church shows forth the truth of what God does to us in redemption. And not only does he save us, but he sanctifies us us as well. Calvin says this, that the church must declare these virtues or excellencies not only by our tongue, but also by our whole life. This doctrine ought to be a subject of daily meditation and it ought to be continually remembered by us, that all God's blessings with which he favors us are intended for this end, that his glory may be proclaimed by us, by our tongues and by our very lives. This is why the church exists, so that we might declare, uh, certainly the the declaration, the proclamation of the church that that begins uh, in the pulpit and goes outward uh, into those who are serving God as royal priesthood, into our very lives, the way that we live. And we know that our catechism speaks of that as well, winning over our neighbors uh, by the lives that we live. We live in, in light, as First Peter says, been called into light. That suggests that we can see, we can see the truth, but it also says what else? It says we can be seen. So as the church, we have been given truth. We know uh, that we stand upon the conviction of truth, that Jesus Christ is the way and the truth of, and the life. Uh, you will not find a, a better answer to the problem of our sinful condition. But to live in light also says that we can be seen. And that means that we trust God to lead us onward as sanctified people uh, who declare his excellence by our lives as well. Verse 10, uh, Peter steps back and and he recounts the gospel. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is an allusion to the, the book of Hosea to show us that in sin we're nothing. right? In our sinfulness uh, uh, we can't claim any right to uh, eternal life or anything else. We're rejected in our sin but reconstituted because of God's mercy. Peter shows us here that if we ever grow weary in, in seeking the glory of God, if we ever grow weary in those rightly ordered loves, the love of God and the love of His glory, then we must recount the gospel, that is the food for our souls. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Verse 11 talks about another way in which the church is distinct. We're distinct in our living. We're distinct in our living, our ethics and morals. First Peter says, I urge you as aliens and strangers... Two words we need to to think about and to notice. Certainly, in today's world, we need to think about and notice them even more. Aliens and strangers are those who wander, who find no home on this earth. Um, scripturally, we speak of a of a dual citizenship. Our citizenship is ultimately in heaven, as Paul says. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord. Jesus Christ. And yet we are citizens of this earth as well. We partake in, in institutions of common grace. We, uh, we, we're not called to be at odds, to be at enmity with our neighbor, but to love them and to serve them, to seek the good of the city in which we live. And yet we understand and we know that ultimately our, our hope is, is not here. It's nowhere on this earth. Our, our hope is in heaven and in the new heavens and the new earth. And so Jesus tells us that we are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Distinct in our lives because we are to abstain from sinful desires as 1 Peter chapter 2 says. The lusts that care nothing, uh, the the lusts that beset us, as uh, he says in verse 11, abstain from sinful desires. The, the, The word there is really a Uh, lusts, sinful lusts. These care nothing for the ultimate questions of how should we live? How should we order our lives? Paul says there, Peter says, these sinful desires war against your soul. They wage war against your soul. Why? Because they set you on a track where you're living counter to the way that God has made you. He's made you to serve him. He's made you to be in fellowship with him. He's made you to be joined uh, in with him in covenants and to serve him rightly and so we see that the church is to live differently than the world it's to live differently in terms of its freedom later on in this chapter Peter will say live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil but living as servants of God to be free is to serve the Lord biblically speaking Galatians 5, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We've said this before. Christian freedom is more about the ability to say no. If you can't say no to the sinful passions that wage war in your soul, then you're not free. And this world would say that freedom is about the, the opportunity to say yes. If you can say yes to anything, then you're free. A Christian would say no. Freedom is the ability to say no you say no to something, that means you're free from it because you're not enslaved to it. We live according to a different freedom, the freedom of serving God because it is only under God that we live. We're distinct in our living and in our discipline as the, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where he says that there are all these sins by which we must not be known. Do you not know, he says, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. saved in Christ and the power of the Spirit, God displaces you and he calls you to a distinct manner of living. And so he goes on to say in 2 Corinthians, the next next, uh, letter that he writes to them, or maybe two letters later, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he says this, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. We think about that in terms of marriage, a Christian and a non-Christian marrying, Which, that's certainly something we keep in mind, but Paul's uh, more direct point here is with the church, simply with the church. We're, We're not yoked, we're not to be yoked with unbelievers, he says. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. We're called to be sanctified, as article 27 says, we are washed, we are sanctified, we are called to this purity of life, this purity of life to be distinct in our uh, living. First Peter chapter 1, as he who called you is holy, so you be holy in all of your conduct, be set apart, be distinct, you shall be holy for I am holy. We live in a world that, that glorifies all kinds of, of sins, certainly sex and sexual desire is uh, a central part uh, of what we see in, in the world. There have been studies shown recently, interestingly, that uh, monotheism, belief in one God, is the only thing that has shown uh, to be or to help people actually successfully suppress the human sexual appetite. That's the only thing. Sociologists are now uh, pretty much unanimous in their assessment of this, that monotheism, the belief in one God, has been the only thing that has shown to help people suppress this sinful desire, one of which Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. Of course, that is true, and we would say that ultimately in our lives, that is true because of the grace of God, because he changes us. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified you're called displaced and then called to be distinct. We are distinct in our submission. As we talked about, our sovereignty is laid down when God works in us and constitutes us as the church. We are to submit to the church and its authority. We are to submit to the discipline of the church. We uh, when we take vows to the church, we say that those who govern in this church have an authority over me to which I'm submitting. Many people in our world would be allergic to those kinds of things. Not God's people, not who live under the authority of his word and seek to serve him in regards to what he has revealed to us. We're to be distinct and to live in the freedom that we have been given in Christ to serve our God, to serve him, and to be a royal priesthood. Finally, the church is dispersed, but it's not divided. Uh, The church is dispersed, but it's not divided. Article 27 says that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And and the idea there, in terms of the unity of the church, is that it's the same Holy Spirit who is given to the church, who indwells the church, and who opens up the meaning of Scripture uh, to those who hear it preached rightly, to those who read it in faith, to those who pray that the meaning of the scriptures would be given to them through the power of the Spirit. though verse 12 shows us that Christians are to be united in their life and doctrine, even though they're scattered throughout the world. The church is dispersed from one corner of the earth to the other. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Peter is assuming there that there's a common reference point for what is good, that there's a common standard for what is good and what is right. The church is to be united in those things. This, of course, happens primarily through the, the right preaching of the word, so that the Holy Spirit might sanctify us in truth. The Spirit is at work in the means of grace, building up the people of God. Sadly, Uh, This past week, as uh, we saw, one of the mainline denominations have this this big general assembly, and there was a a good result from it. But one of the sad things was that Africa had a different, in this denomination, had a a different opinion on a, a doctrine than America. You seemingly had all of the United States, of the United Methodist Church, uh, united on one end of the spectrum. You had Africa united on the other end of the spectrum. You had all the Methodist colleges in America with one voice say, we need to go this way on this question. And you had uh, everyone in, in Africa saying, we need to go another way. The very unhealthy picture of what the church is. That's not what the church is to be. We're dispersed all throughout the world. But we're not divided because the same spirit is leading us into truth. This highlights the importance of proper preaching, of training in righteousness and in doctrine, of standing upon the conviction of truth, highlights the importance of the officers of the church making sure that as God entrusts them to oversee the preaching within a church, that they are making sure they are uh, sticking to the truth Of God's Word. You can take many examples and and to think just how much the the, the secularization of the world has crept into the church in our day. And the way that we think about things like uh, charity and love, and so often uh, when it's not anchored in the truth of God's Word, love becomes about tolerance. Charity becomes about enabling people to live into their self-fulfillment. And to realize their own sovereignty. What do we see in Matthew chapter 18 today? How concerned Jesus is that his people would be anchored in truth. And when someone veers off the path, they need to be brought back in love. Loving someone is about making sure that their life is rightly ordered in terms of its love. Do you fundamentally love yourself or do you fundamentally love God? If I see my brother in Christ and he is living in a way that shows he is loving himself more than he loves the Lord, if I truly love him, I would engage myself in a process to make sure that he is restored to rightly ordered love. The church is dispersed all throughout the world, but it's not divided. It can't be divided on these questions of doctrine, for it is the same spirit leading us into truth. At times, the church looks weak. At times, the church looks divided. And it is confusing in those ways, even as our confession says. There's times in Old Testament Israel where the Lord reserved for himself merely 7,000 men who had not bowed the knee to Baal. But the church endures. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so as we are united in all of these things, dispersed but not divided, as the Spirit leads us into truth, we stand upon the conviction of God even as we understand that those who may confess the name of Christ may go massively uh, other directions on questions of ethics, on questions of truth, on questions of the gospel. We stand firmly upon the conviction of God's Word. Verse 12 also gives us the impression that unless the church is together on these issues... Unless the church is together on right and wrong and calling sin, sin, we cannot be a consistent light in a dark place. Peter says, live such good lives among the pagans. That's not going to make any sense if the church is going two massively separate directions on questions. And so, if the church is to be consistently a light in a dark place, we need to be together on these questions standing upon the clear teaching of God's word. Our catechism says this, Why do we do good works? It says, So that by our godly walk of life, we may win our neighbors for Christ. There's a distinct way of living to which we're called, displaced out of our sovereignty and our self-determination, to serve the Lord and to glorify him because we love him above all things. We're rightly ordered in our loves. We love him and his glory. We understand that the church is dispersed, but it cannot be divided on these things. Because so we've been given the same Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. We trust that God is doing that in and through the church, and we'll consider that further next week as we think about the responsibility we have to join ourselves uh, to the one true church. May God guide us. Uh, As we think about these things this week and next, may he open up the meanings of these scriptures to us by his Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your word, your truth. We thank you that we can serve you in newness of life founded upon the gospel of Christ. We pray that as your people who have been displaced from our own desire to determine the direction of our life, uh, that uh, you would build us up to be distinct in this world, to understand biblical love, to understand biblical uh, discipline and rights and wrong, living to serve you always. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's end by singing the church's one foundation, uh, verses 1, 2, 5, and 6. So number 347 uh, in our red hymnal, verses.